to Mr. Brady. Well, friends, if I could invite you to stand one last time and raise your right pinkies. Here we go. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. Uphol levavha. Uphol nafsheha. Uphol Meodecha. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. And uh, I had something really funny happen today. I was out on the inflatable I or the, the big island thing. Anyone else out there with me? Dads, where are you at? Yeah. Here's the thing, that thing is a bit dangerous. And I came back and I was like walking back to my cabin like this and, and my wife's like, what is wrong? You look like you hurt yourself. And I said, I feel like I got spanked. Because the boys were like, do it again, do it again, do it again. And I probably jumped off the top high thing, which I'm told is 14 feet tall plus my six plus feet is like 20 feet tall with my head going into the water. And I probably did that 40 or 50 times. So that's not recommended. That's what I'm saying right there. But uh, anyway, uh, one more question that we get to kind of explore tonight. And, and this, one, uh, this one is an interesting question because this is a question that I often get asked by people, not who are in my church, but people who I run into who have bailed from church. And they find out I'm a pastor and they corner me. Um, and like flies to the bug zapper, they come right? Uh, but one particularly memorable one for me uh, was a conversation I had on an airplane. And I realized all pastors, we love airplane stories, right? Uh, you probably heard your pastor do an airplane story. Uh, and generally, when the pastor gives an airplane story, the pastor looks heroic in the airplane story. This is not one of those stories. Uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I had an opportunity as a part of the seminary program that I was completing at Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan, to go to Israel um, and to study the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the ground. We stayed with um, a Palestinian family in Bethlehem, Palestinian Christians in Bethlehem, like that Bethlehem, as in baby Jesus Bethlehem. It was really cool. And uh, wonderful conversations um, about that. But in order to get to Israel, to have this experience, we had to do a transatlantic flight. And I don't think anybody loves long transatlantic flights. Um, I'm six foot four. <laughs> I do not like transatlantic flights at all. I try to avoid them as much as possible, which is why my wife and I have already had planned two trips across the Atlantic for next year. And I'm terrified. But anyway, um, I was exhausted. It was uh, like January 2 or 3 that we left. I had just been through a string of like seven or eight Christmas services, plus normal stuff, plus a couple of um, other events. I was running on fumes, to say the least. And I sort of, I got to the airport, and I felt like I just want to get into my seat, take an Ambien, and sleep all the way to Istanbul, which is where we went, and then we went on to Israel. Um, but I felt the Lord smiling upon me that day, because when I went to check in for my flight, I said, I don't suppose you have an emergency exit row, do you? And the attendant looked at me and said, my goodness, you're very tall. I said, do you have an exit row for me? I said, I am also very strong and able to help in the event of a water landing. <laughs> and, 
And she looked back at me and said, we actually, we do have an exit row, and I would love to get you all the way to Istanbul in an exit row. And it was like the clouds parted and the hallelujah chorus began to rain down. This was amazing. So not only, that's the picture of my feet, by the way, in my exit row seat. Can you imagine how amazing that feeling was? It gets even better, though, because not only did I get an emergency exit row, there was no one sitting in the middle seat. You ever had that? So you have, like, room to move around. I was praising the Lord. It was glorious. And they've sealed the doors. So I'm like, I, I cannot believe this is happening. This is the best day ever. This almost feels too good to be true. And then I saw her. At the front of the plane, the flight attendant stands up. And another tall person stands up. And I think, oh, no. I know where this is going, right? And they come towards me. And as the woman gets towards me, I realize that she is a college basketball player. She too is tall. And she comes and literally says, I'm wondering if it would be okay if I sat next to you. And I was so tired and so not feeling like Jesus. I thought in my mind, no, go sit in your other seat, right? But of course I said, oh no, it'd be great. We can sit down next to each other. But I really wasn't in the mood to talk, right? And have you ever had that experience where you're on the plane and you get a talker next to you? Especially on an overnight flight, you're like, oh, really? Really? And you're like, Jesus died on the cross. I can do this. Jesus died on the cross. I can do this. Well, she, she sits down. I try not to make eye contact because I am not in the mood to talk. And she turns to me and she says, so where are you flying to? And I look back at her and thought, okay, I, I'm flying to Israel. And, she, and the plane's going to Istanbul. So she sits bolt upright in her seat, whips around, looks at me and goes, Israel, you're not a Christian, are you? And I thought, you've got to be kidding me right now. <laughs> number one, apparently I don't look like a Christian, which I got to think about that. And number two, people who say things like, you're not a Christian, are you, generally don't like Christians. And people who say, you're not a Christian, are you, really, really don't like pastors. And so I said, you know, yeah, I am a Christian um, and, and, I'm, and I'm going to Israel on a study tour with a bunch of other seminary students. And, uh, you know, back at home, I actually, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And she literally rose around. She goes, you're a pastor? And I thought, man, I don't look like a pastor or a Christian. This is not going well. And she said, you know, I used to go to church, but now I don't go to church anymore. I walked away about 10 years ago. She said, I was raised in the church. So then I'm like, okay, I'm engaging, right? So I'm, I, I said, well, well, what's your story? And she said, well, I, I was born and raised in Chicagoland, which is, you know, like Chicago with a 60-mile radius around it, I think. Um, like they're like South Haven. Yeah, that's Chicago. But um, <laughs> so born and raised in, in uh, Chicagoland. And she said, um, my mom was actually the church secretary. And so every time the church doors were open, we were at church. But she said, um, it, was a, it was a church where the people weren't very, and she used the word Jesus-y, which I love. They just, they just weren't very Jesus-y. She said, my, my, my upbringing was surrounded by people who went to church, who learned a bunch of stuff, but they just, it just didn't seem to have any sort of impact in their lives. And so somewhere around junior high, I decided that this wasn't worth it because it didn't work. Like following Jesus or saying you follow Jesus or whatever, the whole church Jesus God thing, it just didn't seem to yield any sort of results. These people weren't, weren't great people, at least in the way they interacted with other people. She said, my friends that didn't go to church, a lot of times they were better people or even more Jesus-y than the people who went to church. And so she says, you know, wh what, what do you do with that? 
And I thought, okay, that's a really, really fair observation, especially for somebody who went to church. Because sometimes you get people that have no background in church and they make the accusation. I mean, she was, if I may, she's one of us, right? She's a church-going person, at least for much of her life. But I had to confess to her that um, her experience with church isn't that unique. Many people have bad experiences with churches and Christians, and many of them choose to walk away from the pursuit of Jesus as a result. Many people uh, just don't believe following Jesus makes that much difference. But what I said to her is, is that I said, you have to forgive me. This is a little bit basic concept, but just maybe think about this. I said, people that walk away from church because of Christians who don't look very much like Jesus are missing something absolutely critical. Because Jesus doesn't just want his followers to come and gather and sing and go in groups and learn. He wants us to actually follow him, right? That's like one step at a time, dying to ourselves and moving in the direction of the sort of life Jesus has for us. And Jesus invites us to counterintuitive things. Who's noticed, right? Love your enemies. Let's just start there. We could end there, right? Jesus tells us that our resources aren't just for us, but, but he wants us to share. He wants us to lay up treasures in heaven, which would be a great theme for a camp sometime, okay? We should just do that. We could have emotions or whatever. Yeah, he wants us to move away from a self-centered life and move towards an other-centered life. But, but, it's, but it's not just understanding the concept and agreeing that it's a good idea or maybe even feeling emotionally like it's something we want to do. We actually have to do what Jesus says to do if we want to access the sort of life that Jesus wants us to access. And she looked at me and she goes, boy, that's really compelling. Where did you get that idea? And I said, Jesus. She said, I kind of suspected. I said, you probably even learned a song contains the words of a parable that Jesus told one day that I want to unpack with you tonight in this talk. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and this section happens right after the famous Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is the largest block of Jesus' teaching we have in one spot in the Bible, and the sermon is absolutely massive in scope, and it breaks every rule of preaching I've ever learned, but he's Jesus, and he gets to, and it worked, Right? But Jesus says, you learn in teaching, you teach on one topic. Jesus in this sermon teaches on anger and murder and forgiveness and revenge and generosity and just about everything else. And then after teaching on all these topics and pointing people over and over again to counterintuitive ways of living, Jesus drops this piece of wisdom. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus wants more from his followers than simply attending church and taking notes and singing songs. It's not just enough to hear and to understand or even believe that what Jesus is saying is a good way to live. He wants us to do something with what we hear. He wants us to put his words into practice. Next verse, he says, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. So he's describing a life a house that's built on the teachings of Jesus. And he says, storms will come. It's a promise. Because we live in a broken world as broken people, surrounded by other broken people. So it isn't a question of if storms will enter our life. It's simply a question of when. I read once that the average human spends 
more time inside of some sort of life storm than outside of it, which I thought was a terrible thing to be awakened to. And I think it's probably, it's probably true, but you think about all the different sorts of challenges and storms that enter our lives, financial challenges. Sometimes because we bought stuff we couldn't really afford, self-inflicted. Other times the economy does something that's totally out of our control and we find ourselves on the edge of losing our home. Financial storm. Relational storm with a kid or a grandkid or a spouse or a parent. It's like it was going okay and then all of a sudden something happened and we're in the middle of just a big mess. A few of us um, have experienced teenager storms, and those ones are really great, right? Um, you know, I had a guy visit me about a week ago and said his son was on a prodigal son world tour, which I thought that was great. <laughs> He's, I'm like, what's he been doing? He's like, you ever read the prodigal son story? I was like, no, I'm not familiar with that one. No, just kidding. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, you are in the middle of this, and you've invested in this kid, and you've poured faith into this kid, and this kid has been experiencing all these things, and like something happens inside of them and they just all of a sudden need to explore and try everything that's outside of what you'd ever want them to do. And a storm has entered your story. Or it's a health scare. It's, it's a friend or an aunt or an uncle and they go to the doctor for a routine physical and they get some not so routine results and the doctor says, you know, we're going to have to start chemo and all of a sudden out the window of the hospital they sort of see the metaphorical storm clouds rolling in to their life. Storms will come. Matthew, or Jesus says, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Again, the house that was built by doing what Jesus said to do. He says, yet it did not fall because it's had its foundation on the rock. Like if we build our lives on the teachings of Jesus, it's like we're building a house, our house, our life on a firm foundation. We can stand in the midst of a storm. We're building resilience into our lives. Resilience is staying power, right? It's the ability to be at your best when life is not at its best. And it's what Jesus wants for all of us. That's why he still, 2,000 years later, is whispering to individuals, would you follow me? Would you lean away from the ways that you naturally want to live when you lean into your flesh and would you lean towards this counterintuitive way of doing life that will actually bring you the resilience you so desperately desire and will actually activate the potential that God has placed in your life. So Jesus invites us, every one of us, to prepare our hearts and our lives before the storms come. And Jesus suggests that what we do to prepare for a storm will greatly impact the sort of life we have in the middle of the storm. And we prepare for the storm again by doing what Jesus tells us to do. But as he continues, he unpacks another option because there is another option and I would argue it's the natural one. It's like we can come to church, we can sing songs, and we can do nothing. We can just like hear it, feel something, agree, put it in the file folder of good intentions. Do you have one of those? I do, right? Like, yeah, I'll get to that at some point. But and then Jesus says this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. But Jesus is talking to Jewish people in the first century, and the first century Jewish people were rooted in the Old Testament. And if you go to the Old Testament and say, well, what's a Jewish definition of a fool? Specifically in the Proverbs, it's someone who does not connect choices and consequences. So you're foolish if you don't realize that there's a connection between the things you do or don't do and the way you experience life. 
Jesus says, as he continues, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. It's the same storms, right? The language is identical in the English and in the Greek. He says, and it fell with a great crash. The same storm surges into life, but this time there's been no preparation. And this life crashes down. And Jesus is trying to make an incredible point to this audience who's just heard incredible counterintuitive teaching. He's like, he appreciates people listening. He appreciates people taking notes. But he wants to say to you and to me, until you actually apply this truth in your life, until you actually repent of the ways that are coming naturally and you trust me about where life is found, it's like, it's not really going to make that much difference in your life. Even if you hear it and believe it, even if you hear it and feel like you need to change, even if you hear it and have an emotional response. If you want to activate the potential in your life that Jesus has for you, you've got to trust him and you've got to follow. So an airplane girl said to me that following Jesus doesn't work. I mean, I, I do believe she missed something. Church gatherings are all about hearing. Just by functionality, we come and we sit in rows. But in, it's the doing, it's the applying that really makes the difference. And it's kind of amazing we forget this principle. Because this is actually true in every area of our lives. As I was, as I was preparing, I had a couple of funny examples come to mind. Um, growing up, my family had a treadmill that we never used. Anyone have one of these? Yeah, treadmill, maybe it's an elliptical because you're cool. I don't know, right? But you have one. And I remember we got this elliptical from Amway because we live near Ada. And they had this like surplus store for employees. And I don't even know how we got in because my parents didn't work for Amway. But somebody got us in or snuck us in or I don't know if you work for Amway. Sorry about that. But we got this, this really cool treadmill, heavy duty thing. And my dad was all excited because he was having some heart stuff going on. And the guy, the doctor said, but you should get a treadmill. He said, I'm getting a treadmill. And here's the funny part. So I remember going to the store with my dad and loading it into a back of a friend's pickup truck and we lugged it to the house. My dad burned more calories that day moving the treadmill into our basement than he ever in the 10 years it sat there because he never used it. And actually the, the one or two times I tried to use it, it was hooked up to a plug that couldn't handle the load. So you'd be like cruising and then the power would shut off and you just wham. It was so good. We gave it away one day and I said, now listen, it needs like a 30 amp circuit. I don't know why, but, but if you don't, you're gonna have some unfortunate bruises from your, <laughs> from your treadmill. And see, my dad knew that working out on a treadmill was good for him. He just never did anything with that knowledge. He knew it. He knew he should. He, he even, when he'd go to the doctor, the doctor would be like, dude, do you want to meet your, you know, your grandkids someday? You got to get on this thing. And he would feel something, but, but he never really did anything with that, with that impulse. I also thought about um, on my freshman hall at U of M, I met a guy who was studying to be a nutritional counselor. So he was one of these people who would like sit up in the dorm hallway at night with books about nutrition, Right? And it was like, you know, what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat. But, but he lived in the dorm with us, the freshman dorm, which meant we all ate at the same cafeteria. So he would sit and engage people in like long dialogues. about This is even before we knew what glutens were, friends. It was a dark time, okay? I'm just saying, those scary gluten things. And, and if you're gluten insensitive, that was not, I don't mean the insensitive. I was just, I got it. Great. And the gluten, the gluten-free donuts. Come on. Yesterday night, who had one? The gluten-free donuts warmed up in the microwave? 
Hallelujah. Those were awesome. I had one myself. So anyway, but so he's pouring over the notes, talking about, how, okay, so what, what in the world, um, you know, you're supposed to eat, and he'd tell people about what to eat. But then I would go actually eat with him. And he would have like seven Coca-Colas and a pile of French fries at every meal. And at some point, I thought, you hypocrite, right? Like, what are you doing? You want to be a nutritional counselor and you eat worse than any of the six-year-olds I've ever met. Like, what? You know you should be, there is a salad bar, right? You know the pictures in those books? Those are actually food that you can actually eat. But, but so he knew what he was supposed to do. He just never did anything with that knowledge. And unless you're doing something, it doesn't make a difference. That's, that's the principle. And now, it shouldn't surprise us that um, this is not, Jesus' teaching is not the only place this idea shows up in the New Testament of the Bible because this is very, very important. This is important for us, but this is also important for our testimony in the world. It really is. Because one of my favorite things is when someone spins into my church, our church, you know, the Keystone Church, and they come in and I meet them and I say, man, welcome. You know, why, why did you decide to come to Keystone uh, on Sunday morning? And, you know, recently I had a family say, well, we were, we were actually working at a school in the inner city and a whole crew of your people came in and brought, like, school supplies that the teachers needed. And we were just blown away and we we're like, well, who, who, who's bringing this? They're like, well, there's just church in Ada called Keystone. And so we just wanted to come and see. And that's the power of actually doing, right? You know, well, Jesus didn't say bring poor kids school supplies. No, he said love people, right? And it's like when the church actually starts doing it or we as individuals start doing it, it become, people start to see the beauty in the life that Jesus designed for us. So again, this shows up repeatedly in the New Testament. I'm gonna show you one more passage tonight. Um, the second passage is actually from Jesus' half-brother, James, and he writes a letter to early Christians. Uh, again, after the resurrection, James comes to believe in Jesus. He becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And uh, James writes a letter to encourage believers. And here's what he says. James, in, in James 1.22, Do not merely listen to the word, speaking of the word, the Bible, the teachings of Jesus, and so deceive yourselves. He says, do what it says. And, and anytime you read a command in the New Testament, you have to go, okay, why would, why would James have to tell them this? Well, he had to tell them this because they weren't doing it. They were listening and they weren't doing. It's almost like for 2,000 years, people have had the same problem. We all think there's religious value from simply hearing and receiving. But it's like James says, if you want to activate this potential, you've got to do stuff. Don't think just because you're there and you heard, you're going to be changed. You have to apply what you've learned. To think you get the benefits from simply knowing, I mean, that's, that's just deception. And we kind of get that. I think many of us were raised in a religious culture and picked up the idea that if we showed up and went through a routine, you know, God would bless us. That somehow church attendance was like a good luck charm. It was mystical and magical, but it really didn't have much to do with application. It was just about being there and hearing. But, but James says, listen, if that's the way you're thinking, you've deceived yourselves. Hearing and receiving, it, it's not bad, but it won't help you. It won't change you. Neither will taking notes. Neither will listening to podcasts. That's in the Greek listening to podcasts. Yeah. In the end, nothing changes until you actually do something with what you've learned. He continues, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror, and I love this, what he does next, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And, we, like, and we're like, what? Well, James is saying this. It's like a person gets up in the morning, and they stand in front of a mirror, and this is something we all do, right? 
and you stand in front of the mirror, and let's just say on this particular morning, you notice you have the world's largest zit on the end of your nose. And you're just like, and we would say, ha, ah, like that, right? But James is like, let's say you look in the mirror and you realize, boy, matters need to be addressed pretty dramatically, right? I mean, things are not looking good. And he says, it's like, you, you realize there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to change, but you don't do anything. You just walk out and go away and go about what your day and forget what you look like physically. But see, we'd never do that, right? But our physical appearance has little to do with the dysfunction of our souls. I mean, not many of us look back and say, well, my problems really started because of the way I looked. Our, our greatest regrets don't begin the morning I looked bad and I went out anyway. Yet we prioritize physical appearance and we stand in front of the mirror as long as it takes to get presentable. And we have all these tools and creams and brushes and other things that I probably don't use as much as I should, right? And we, we stand there until we, until we look like we think we need to look to engage life. And James says that for most people, we know what God wants us to do in our lives. It's not an issue of knowing or receiving. It's an issue of doing. And so this passage implies a great question. Why would you know what you need to do and not do it? You'd never do that physically but with regards to your soul, it's like we're negligent. So as he continues, he gives us the proper picture. He says, but whoever, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and, and this, is, this is awesome, Paul, or James rather, describes God's law as the perfect law that brings freedom. This is the law that if we allow it to guide our lives, preserves our soul and can actually begin to heal us from the inside out. He says, but whoever looks intently at the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, and a literal translation would be like stoop down and focus, not just looking at the law and then leaving, but lingering over the law, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. When I was preparing for this, um, I had a, a really, I had, I don't know, an image came to mind that was sort of helpful for me as I thought about this, specifically with like all the different things that, that Jesus instructs us to do, ways that we can sort of structure our lives to honor what God had in mind. And I actually started thinking about Legos. Any Lego fans? Anybody? Yeah. One nerd herd represent. Yeah. So I actually had this idea because I was walking out first thing in the morning to get a cup of coffee and I stepped on a Lego in my bare feet and I spoke in tongues. It was amazing. No, there... Lego pain, friends, is a particularly sinister kind of pain. I, I don't know what's going on with it, but, but just imagine with me like that there's like this Lego set, um, and actually I have a friend that just put one of these together. This is the Millennium Falcon Lego set, and it's a bit extreme. There are 7,541 pieces. Yeah, I was like, dude, you need a hobby. Bad, right? But see, no one looks at the picture on the box and thinks, oh, I can put this together without any instructions at all, Right? I just shred those instructions or burn them. I'll just start snapping pieces together. You would never, never do that. But here's the thing. If you do take the time and you follow the instructions, you'll find out what the designer had in mind. And you end up actually holding this Lego set. And James says something similar with regards to our lives. He says, like the God who made you, who knows you better than you know yourself, and who designed you. He has given you some instructions on how best to do life in a broken world, as a broken person, surrounded by other broken people. He's going to tell you to step away from selfishness and step towards 
selflessness. He's going to tell you to move away from greed and towards generosity. He's going to tell you to move away from revenge and move towards forgiveness. There are these instructions and they're hard and they don't feel right and we feel like they're going to cost us too much. But it's like James says, if you actually follow the design that God has given us through the teachings of his son and through his word, you're going to end up with a life that looks more like what he had in mind. And you do that by looking over and over again into what, into what, is, what James calls the perfect law that brings freedom. Because God's law isn't designed to hedge us in. It's actually to bring us into freedom, into the life that he wants. When we do what Jesus says to do, it's almost like we're partnering with the Holy Spirit. We're agreeing with him about where life is found. And when we, we just simply say yes, it's like, okay, um, I, I don't want to forgive, but I trust you, Jesus, more than I trust myself, so I'll do what you say to do. When we do this, we step into this beautiful partnership with God, and he will go to work at the level of our souls to heal us and preserve us from things like discontentment and materialism and lust and jealousy. He has a part to play, but then we have a part to play. And that's why it's the doing and not just the knowing that makes such a difference. So just, you know, come back to where we started, sitting on the plane with Airplane Girl, and she's saying, you know, I don't know. I don't feel like the whole Church Jesus God thing works. And I remember saying to her, you know, have, have you ever tried to apply one of Jesus' teachings in your life in somewhere, somewhere that you, you probably wouldn't want to? And she looked at me like, why would I even do that? And then we started talking about people who hurt her. We were somewhere over the mid-Atlantic by this point, And we had dinner. It was lovely, right? Out of a small plastic tray because we weren't in first class. But anyway. And we're talking. And, and she starts sharing about hurts in her past. Hurts from her parents. And I said, you know, I would just encourage you. I would encourage you to maybe investigate steps to actually forgiving them. Don't make them pay for what they did to you. And she looked back at me and she said, well, everything in me says that that's not okay because like I'm a victim in this whole thing. And I said, sure, maybe that's, that's fine. But I said, I wonder what would happen in your heart if you trusted Jesus on just this one thing. Taste and see. Just see what happens. What do you have to lose? You have a dead relationship with your mom and your dad. Does it get worse than that? I mean, literally, you start to lean towards them in grace and forgiveness, and just see what happens. And I said, at least acknowledge that it's possible that that step makes all the difference in your life. And if it makes the difference that I am convinced it will make, then maybe following Jesus is something you need to reconsider. So as we wrap our time together this weekend, it has been such an honor to be with you. Um, my family and I have had an incredible week in getting to know some of you and some of your stories. Just what, what a blessing. We'll be here tomorrow too. I'll probably be on the, the tower again if it's out there. If not, I'll fi you'll find me on the blob. My boys like to do the blob too. It's really kind of, the little one just flies like 30 feet in the air. It's great. Um, but I just wanted to leave you with, with a challenge directly from this teaching. And it, it's, it looks like this. Um, Many, many of us have been following Jesus for decades, and it's awesome. And we have learned so much. 
But it's also possible that after decades, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to you, you reach a point where you just sort of stall. And it isn't intentional. It's just like the momentum sort of stops. And so what I, the question I wanted to leave you with, just to think about maybe tomorrow, is, is what's my next step of obedience to following Jesus? What does that look like? I mean, maybe like you need to get on a plane to China and go check out this really cool orphanage. I don't know, right? Maybe for you, your faith has become too comfortable. And maybe for you, even though you're doing, as far as you go, you're, like, you're doing everything that Jesus would have you do, but maybe it's just turning it up one click somewhere with regards to your church, with regards to your generosity, with regards to your ability to serve. Like, what would that look like? And my suspicion is, based on my own experience and talking to other people for 20 years, is that when you take that next step, that fresh step, that step that moves you closer to what God had in mind, you will find that your faith begins to move a little bit from almost like black and white to color. It comes alive in a fresh new way. Not that you didn't have faith before, but there's something about that, that forward momentum in following Jesus that just it's, it's just refreshing. And it, what's amazing is it can happen whether, I mean, maybe you've been a Christian for a year and you're already feeling kind of like, man, if we sing Oceans one more time, so help me. I'm going to go nuts, right? No, no offense to Oceans. We, you know what I'm saying? If you don't know that one, I, that was, I thought that was the worst song I've ever heard and then we sang it three billion times. And I was wrong, but that's okay. But, but I, now I'm right because I'm sick of it. But anyway, um, and four of you are like, that's my favorite song. I kind of like this guy. No, not so much. But anyway, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, but what is it for you? What's that, what is that next step? And whatever it is, whatever it is, I just plead with you to take it. Take it. If it's a risk, take it. Because your heavenly father loves you. And he's made his will known to you in his word. And, he, and he's saying to you, will you trust me? Will you keep moving forward? And as you do, friends, your faith in your heavenly Father, intersects with his faithfulness. And at that juncture, I'm convinced that's where we find the combustion of the soul. And that's my prayer for you. That your faith would increase more and more each day as you follow ever closer to the example set by our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, it just seems appropriate right now to say thank you. Thank you for this space in which you brought this community together for this stretch of life. Thank you for your word that continues to speak to us thousands of years after it was written. In fact, your word that reads us as we read it. And I pray that in the day that remains together, you would open our ears to the voice of your spirit. That you would bring to the front the things that we really do need to do business with. The things, areas in life that we're holding back, areas in life that, that you're inviting us to follow, areas where we're going to need to sacrifice and step out in obedience. I pray that you would bring those to mind and then we would sense anew the voice of your son inviting us to follow. We thank you that you love us because you are good and not because we are good. We thank you that you're the God of second chances. 
And for some of us, um, maybe a fresh season of repentance begins tonight and, and we receive your grace. And we're so thankful. Most of all, I, Lord, I just, I want to thank you for Jesus one more time. For what his death and resurrection means for the life to come and for what his life means for our lives right here and right now. May we have courage to follow and find out firsthand the difference that doing what Jesus says to do can make in a life. We bless you, we thank you, we love you. In the matchless name of your son we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, thank you this week. It's been awesome to be with you.